God, our greatest need is to see our need of you. Help us to feel the need of your continued saviorhood. And cry with Job, I am vile. With Peter, I perish. With the publican, be merciful to me, a sinner. What we need in this hour is beyond what a mere man can supply. Would you please be gracious to us and make the book live among us? There is in this auditorium a spiritual battle going on for the attention, the minds, and the hearts of those listening. There's more going on here than meets the eye. So we need unseen help. Spiritual aid for a spiritual battle. God, we stand in awe of your otherness, your holiness. We confess our sinfulness, our transgressions. We come to thee for forgiveness, for cleansing, for removal. We have great sins, but we have a greater Savior. We plead the blood. This is our corporate plea. And all God's people said, your life, your life is a series of scenes narrated by God. The other night, my wife and I were trying to encapsulate each other's lives into three scenes. If you could summarize your life into three scenes, what would they be? Here's what I came up with for her. A swole baby a social butterfly, a sacrificial beauty. Scene one, a swole baby. My wife had leukemia when she was a child. So while she was taking chemo, they were also giving her steroids. So she was swole. <laughs> her mother said she wanted to eat meat all the time. More, more meat, more meat. Scene one, a swole baby. Scene two, a social butterfly. This describes my wife's high school years and her college years when I met her she would just fly around and, and happily speak to everyone scene three a sacrificial beauty that's been the scene in our marriage and in her mothering now if I were in the director's chair and narrating her scenes I would not have chosen to shoot scene one a cancerous child not knowing if she was going to make it. I would have left that out of the movie. But I'm not the narrator. God is. Let God narrate. Now, let me be clear. He's going to narrate whether you like it or not. What I meant by let him narrate is this. These three words capture what it means to live with confidence knowing God is sitting in the director's chair. It's facing the scenes of life while trusting in the hand of God. As we approach 1 Samuel chapter 23 and 24, we find God doing what God does, narrating. He's sitting on the director's throne and narrating David's story. He gives us in our text five scenes. Scene one, a rejected savior. Scene two, an encouraging friend. Scene three, a surprising betrayal. 
Scene four, a narrow escape. Scene five, an oasis reunion. As these scenes began to unfold, David would say, I would not have chosen that scene, but God did. Glory be to God, let him narrate. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian, and you're wondering, Kyle, why do I even need this text? Maybe you are a Christian, and you're asking the same question. There are five reasons that you need today's text. First, it points you to Christ. We're going to see that from the jump. Second, it reveals your need for Christian friends. Friendship in the gospel. Thirdly, it informs you that life is not always happy clappy. Your life isn't always happy clappy, so the Bible isn't always happy clappy. Fourthly, it demonstrates that God is working in the small details. Engineering these circumstances. Fifthly, it reinforces to you that God doesn't need you to try cases for him. He doesn't need you to be judge, jury, and executioner. Each scene gives us a reason why we need the text. Let's begin with scene one, a rejected Savior. 1 Samuel 23, verse 1, the Word of God says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Kilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Let's pause here. David is on the run from Saul. He's been on the run for quite a while. Saul became like a, a father to David shortly after David defeated Goliath. But Saul sonly grew in, in, insanely jealous of David. And now he's on the hunt to kill him. He's also killing anyone who helps David. He's just killed 65 priests from Nob along with their wives, children, and family pets. He's putting all of his military strength into capturing, torturing, and eventually destroying David. Well, this left Israel vulnerable. When you concentrate all your efforts over here, it leaves an opening over there. And over there was Kilah. Kilah was a city located in an agriculturally productive area. The Philistines mounted an attack on this Israelite city and were robbing the threshing floor. Israel, after months of planting, tending, harvesting, would lay their crops on the threshing floor, which was a, a large, flat, circular, open space of exposed bedrock or hardened clay. They would separate the husk from the grain by beating the husk with sticks. Then they would take long pitchforks and toss the barley up into the air. Now that's why the threshing floor was on the side of the hill, open to the winds on every side. This was done in the evening when the sea breezes blew the strongest. The wind took away the chaff and the good stuff fell to the floor. Now all of that work had been done. It's now bagged and ready to distribute to buyers or turned into much needed food for the city. But the Philistine raiding parties began hauling it off in the dark of night. Some by hand and, and some by Philistine cattle. This was a war plan. The Philistines would starve the city into submission. David and Saul each had spies active throughout the land. They each had intelligent networks that kept them in the loop. 
Saul apparently chooses to ignore the attack on the city. He's just willing to let it be captured. He's got bigger fish to fry. David tilapia. But when David hears of this atrocity, he's moved. His spy networks tell him, Kyla is being robbed and starved. The Philistines have them right where they want them. The city has no help. Saul is chasing us and giving no thought to them. Verse 2. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Kyla. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kyla against the armies of the Philistines? <laughs> See what's happening? David receives pushback from his men. We can't use our energy and resources to save that city. We need to conserve them to fight off Saul's army that outnumbers us five to one easy. Plus, we are on the run. We aren't in the position to save anyone. We are in the position for someone to save us. David double checks. He goes to the Lord again, verse 4. Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. This gave David's men the resources they needed, the, the reassurance they needed. They rolled into Kilah 600 deep and laid it down. The text says they struck the Philistines with a great blow. It was a quick and decisive victory. Total destruction. The Philistines lost a lot of men that day. David's men ate a lot of meat that day. The Philistine cattle made for excellent steaks. Verse 6 helps us with our timeline. Last week, one priest escaped Saul's slaughter and ran to David. Where? This verse tells us in Kilah. Meaning that while David was defending this Israelite city, Saul was killing those Israelite priests. Saul didn't have time to save his own people because he was killing his own people, whom he thought were aiding David. Verse 7. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Kilah. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Kilah was a walled city with only one exit. Saul knew if he could get there before David left, David and his men would be trapped. Saul is convinced that David has backed himself into a corner. Saul commands all the people of war to descend on Kilah and take David dead or alive. Saul even claims God on his side. <laughs> He's still using religious jargon. The self-deception is mind-numbing. David gets word from his military intelligence that Saul is coming. So David asks Abiathar, that's the one priest who escaped the slaughter, to bring the ephod. The ephod was like a, a sacred apron that the high priest wore. And, and I should highlight here how these two men make decisions. One is constantly seeking the Lord, and the other, Saul, is relying on rumors and espionage. David asks the Lord in verse 12, Will the men of Kilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will surrender you. David, even though you saved them, they're still loyal to Saul. They will concoct a plan to betray you. So David and the 600 men leave the city and return to the desert. 
When Saul heard they left Kilah, he called off the raid. Verse 14b. And Saul sought David every day, but God did not give David into Saul's hand. David continued to live in desert hideouts, moving from place to place, all very rough terrain. But, but let's take a step back. What did David do for Kilah? Well, he did the work of a king. He protected them. He endangered himself to save a city. He risked his life to save theirs. God is casting David into the role of savior. David is Kyla's savior. But he becomes a rejected savior. The citizens betray him. Now, why did they betray their savior? Maybe they didn't want to harbor a fugitive. Maybe the, they thought Saul would massacre them like he did the city of Nob. We don't know. But we do know this is a city of Judas Iscariots, a community of traitors. You see a person's true colors when you are no longer beneficial to their life. This rejected Savior is an echo of a coming rejected Savior. Jesus will come and save a people and they will betray him. Turning him over to authorities, trapping him, not in a city, but in a garden. Scene two, an encouraging friend. Look at verse 16. And Jonathan, <clears throat> Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. <coughs> now, David is in a bad place. He's isolated. He's on the run. He's facing betrayal everywhere he looks. We know from the Psalms that David wrote during this time that he battled deep depression, deep loneliness, deep emotional distress. He's uncertain. He's discouraged. Then suddenly he sees the sun peek over the dreary mountains. Saul's son, Jonathan. He hasn't seen him in months, possibly a year or years. What a sight for sore eyes. What a needed relief. There are resources God gives his people in difficult days. One of them is friendship. How did Jonathan find David, but his father Saul couldn't? Well, God knows how to get his resources to his children in their time of need. And he always delivers just in time. What does Jonathan do for David? Well, the text tells us he strengthened his hand in God. The, the word hand is used over and over in these two chapters. 22 times. God wouldn't deliver David into Saul's hand. Here, Jonathan strengthens David's hand. It is normal to walk with God and have weak hands. That doesn't mean something is wrong with you. That means you're normal. You're human. Notice what Jonathan does. This is what gospel friendships do. He puts David's hand into God's hand. Now, how does he do this? Verse 17. And Jonathan said to David, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father, 
also knows this. How did Jonathan put David's hand into God's hand? By reminding him of the promises of God. The Lord promised that you will be king. Don't give up now. Don't lose hope now. Keep pressing. Keep pursuing. You're almost to the throne. You're almost home. Jonathan is speaking God's word to him. That's biblical encouragement. David, you have plenty of reasons to fear. But here's one reason why you shouldn't fear. God promised he would make you king. My earthly father reneges a lot. But my heavenly father does not. Saul is not going to find you. He will not kill you. There's a certain optimism about the future when Jonathan speaks. A certain outlook, a certain worldview that strengthens David's hand. Have you ever wondered how you can encourage a struggling friend? You do this. Speak God's word to them. Speak God's promises to them. Have an outlook on life's sad scenes that put them into proper perspective. This is what Christians do for one another. They strengthen one another. And this is why you need to be a part of a cluster of Christians. Part of a local church. The strongest among us needs comrades to come alongside and strengthen our hands. Some of you have done this for me and my wife. Come alongside us and say something that is so theologically informed it puts everything into proper perspective. Oh, how we need gospel-saturated, word-centered friendships. May each of us have a scene in our life entitled, An Encouraging Friend. We will never know how close David was to giving up. But we know God sent reinforcements just in time. Verse 18. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. This is the last time these two will ever see each other. What was their last conversation centered around? The promises of God. Scene one, a rejected savior. Scene two, an encouraging friend. Scene three, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get good here. A surprising betrayal. Verse 19. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender David into the king's, here's the word again, into the king's hand. These Ziphites are people within David's own tribal territory. They are his people. They are his clan. They betray him. Don't they know that snitches get stitches? David's life consists of one betrayal after another. These people have nothing to lose for not turning David in and nothing to gain for turning him in. This is just cold opportunism. They initiate the conversation. Hey Saul, we've, we've seen David in the caves and canyons near us. Verse 21, and Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. <laughs> Saul invokes the Lord's name again. 
How hardened do you have to be to do this? You've just killed 65 of the Lord's priests. Now you're flippantly saying, may the Lord bless you for snitching on David. Saul thinks the Lord is actually on his side. Someone can use the name of God to commit all sorts of atrocities. Isn't that right, Saul? Saul is playing the victim again. Oh, thank you for taking pity on me. Oh, bless your little compassionate heart. You're seeing what these people are doing to me. It's wrong. It's just wrong, I'm telling you. Saul is living in his own little world, and he's the center of it. And no one can bring him out into reality. Saul continues speaking in verse 22. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where David's foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning. See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where David hides, and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. In other words, scout all the hiding places, be as precise as possible, marking the unique string of locations David has spotted. David's intel gave him a heads up about all of this, so he and his 600 men avert disaster by going on the move. But this betrayal stings. What did this betrayal do to David? For homework, you may want to read Psalm 54. David wrote Psalm 54 when he found out the Ziphites ratted on him. Church, as God is narrating your story, there will be scenes in which you could title surprising betrayals. These are soul-crushing, but let God narrate. They are not outside of his sanctifying plan for your life. React to betrayals like David does in Psalm 54, giving more thought to the narrator than the scene. Scene one, a rejected savior. Scene two, an encouraging friend. Scene three, a surprising betrayal. Scene four, a narrow escape. David receives the intelligence report that Saul is zeroing in on him. And so David is making a mad dash. Watch him run in verse 26. Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. And Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them. There's such tension in this verse. David is in full retreat running with Saul and his men closing in. Sympathetic readers close their eyes at this point and refuse to watch the capture and humiliation of David. They, they must turn away. You've seen children do this when they watch certain shows. They just they have to turn away. Just, just then, verse 27, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. The Philistines evidently are raiding part of Saul's sovereign territory. Not just some small city like Kylo, but a larger area. And taking a step back, how crazy is it to use government resources for your own little agendas when you're in the middle of a war with the Philistines? Verse 28. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called 
the Rock of Escape. That's how the place got its name. They named it Rock of Escape to remember when David and his 600 men narrowly escaped. Ralph Dell Davis said, In all the topography and geography, David escaped Saul, but never escapes the shelter of the Most High. David is coming to realize that God has engineered his circumstances. The hurts, the betrayals, the narrow escapes. Dear brothers and sisters, events aren't falling randomly in your life. God's the narrator directing these scenes to make you more dependent on him and more confident in his hand to deliver. Scene one, a rejected savior. Scene two, an encouraging friend. Scene three, a surprising betrayal. Scene four, a narrow escape. Scene five, an oasis reunion. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1. When David returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness. Significant word. David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Saul was apparently victorious over whatever Philistine threat appeared, so now he's back to headhunting. He receives an intelligence report that tells him David is at Engedi. Engedi is an, is an oasis in the desert. It has waterfalls, freshwater springs, lush vegetation, countless caves dotting, dotting the limestone cliffs. David and his men are hiding out in a cave, not a small cave but one where 600 men could camp out. It's a giant cave. You could park a bus in it. it. It winds around and seems to go on for days at times. From that vantage point, David and his men would be able to see Saul coming from miles away. Now let's leave David and his men in that cave and find Saul and his 3,000 men. Verse 3. And Saul came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Let's stop here. Saul and his men have made a journey to Engedi. It's like walking into an outdoor resort. It was beautiful. Uh, they, they take a rest after having completed their journey. Some men go out looking for food. Some go for a swim. It's downtime for everyone, including Saul. It's been a long journey with no pit stops, so Saul tells his men that he's going to the bathroom. There were no outhouses in this day, so he went into a cave. Using the bathroom was the only time Saul would be separated from his men. He goes into a cave, and I quote, to relieve himself. You say, Kyle, that's TMI. That's, that is too much information. Well, the Hebrew is even more blunt than this. The English says to relieve himself, but the Hebrew says he revealed his ankles. Meaning he either lifted his robe or disrobed and put it aside. It's saying he went number two. When, when Sarah and I were in our 20s, we became friends with a couple in their late 40s and early 50s. Uh, we would go over to their house and, and hang out. It was like organic discipleship. It actually started before we got married in Knoxville, maybe 19 or 20, and continued into our marriage for six years. Anyway, if, if they would be talking about bodily functions, I would always walk out of the room. 
And, and they caught on after a while, and then they just started doing it on purpose. And, and I would put my fingers in my ears, and I would walk away, and the wife would always say, Kyle, these are natural bodily functions. No need to walk away. This is just how God made us. Well, I'm going to tell you the same thing, church. <laughs> this is just natural, normal bodily function. No need to be grossed out or say, I can't believe the preacher is saying this. God thought it was important enough to inspire it and preserve it for all generations to read. Now back to the text. Nature calls, Saul answers. He takes his newspaper into the cave. He sets his kingly robe to the side so he can do his business. He's in the most vulnerable position imaginable. Now, David and his men are in the exact same cave. What are the odds? Saul had no idea that 600 pairs of eyes are watching him. Stephen Davy is rather transparent commenting on this verse and said that Saul suffered from constipation. It was called, even back in the ancient days, the curse of kings. Now, I wasn't in the cave, and I'm glad I wasn't. But if I were there, I would have said to David, it's time to kill Saul while he's on the commode. This has to be God's will. He's doubly exposed without his men and without his armor. 600 of David's men unanimously agree with me that this can only mean one thing. The Lord has given Saul into David's hand. The opportunity presents itself. David stealthily works his way over to Saul. David is holding a, a big sword, Goliath's sword. His men wait way back in the recesses of the cave. David returns with a big smile on his face. They eagerly ask, did you do it? Did you kill him? David holds up a piece of Saul's robe and says, I didn't kill him, but I cut off the corner of his robe. What? You're supposed to cut off his head. In that private moment, David could have killed Saul. Killing Saul would have solved about all his problems. With one slash of the sword, he says goodbye to poverty. Goodbye to fugitive life. Goodbye to sleeping in caves. And hello to kingship. Hello to king-size mattresses. Hello to kingly feasts. But church, sometimes you wait. Even when you see opportunity. You don't force it. David knew God would put him on the throne. But not this way. That's not how God will establish David's kingdom. David will not take the throne by force. He will wait for God with faith. Reminds me of another king who once said, My hour has not yet come. Peter, put down your sword. David refused to kill Saul. But he did cut the corner of his robe. Why? The robe was linked emblematically to kingship. This robe was a sign of the office. David did this symbolic action to remind Saul that God has cut off his kingdom. In fact, ripping, tearing, or cutting robes is a common theme in 1 Samuel. Remember when Saul ripped Samuel's priestly garment? And Samuel turned around and said, So has your kingdom been ripped from you? But here's what's interesting. Immediately after cutting Saul's robe, 
David felt guilty. Verse 5. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. David had a sensitive conscience. Saul had a seared conscience. David sinned in the wilderness, and he knew it. Verse 6. David said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. Now I'm taking a step back here and I'm saying, Wait a minute, David. You are the Lord's anointed. Yes, but so was Saul. Saul was anointed and rejected. David was anointed and waiting. David carried a certain respect for God's office of Israel's king. Even though he didn't kill Saul, he knew the implications of his actions. God is the one who cuts the corner of the rope, not him. Verse 7, so David persuaded, persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Persuaded. That's kind and gentle, isn't it? David persuaded his men not to kill Saul. It's a little stronger in the Hebrew. It says he tore them apart with his words. He had to get quite forceful with them. Once Saul is finished doing his business, used all the toilet paper, finished reading the newspaper, Saul puts his robe back on and does not notice that the corner is missing. He leaves the cave and when he is a safe distance away, David shouts at Saul, My Lord the King! Saul turns around and in the distance he sees David bowing down with his face on the ground. David is taking a calculated risk. Verse 9. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand, into the hand in the cave, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father? See the corner of the robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. David calls Saul father because there was a time when he was like a father to him. I could have cut you, killed you, but I didn't. Look at the evidence. I'm not against you. I'm no rebel. See David pull the corner of the kingly robe out and it flutters in the hot desert wind. Verse 12, may the Lord judge between me and you and may the Lord avenge me against you but my hand shall not be against you. Notice where David's hope lies. His hope is not in Saul changing, but in the judge of all the earth giving the final verdict on this matter. David is refusing to be judge, jury, and executioner. He's committing vengeance to God's calendar. You do the same, church. God does not need you to try cases for him. Remove your hand from the sword and leave it in the hands of God. Verse 16, 
As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, this is surprising, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Saul went from refusing to say his name in previous chapters to now calling him son. This act of kindness wrecks Saul. He's emotionally broken. He can't conceive of the restraint David showed in the cave. He can't fathom the mercy that he's just received from David. Saul, verse 17, said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me. Notice this phrase. When the Lord puts you, put, when the Lord put me into your hands. You've heaped good on me, and all I've done is dump evil on you. Saul admits that the trumped-up charges against David are bogus. He's done no wrong. Do you remember back in the second scene, Jonathan saying, My father knows you're going to be king. Well, look at verse 20. Saul says, And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Now the text says that Saul returned home, but David did not return home. He stayed in the wilderness. Why? He knew the tendency of Saul to renege on his promises. Saul always repents. And it's always a false repentance. David's path to the throne certainly wasn't a straight line. But God never promised it would be. Church, I, I told you at the beginning that there are five reasons you need this text. I want to revisit each of those. One, it points you to Christ. David's time in the wilderness left him with no place to lay his head. It left him as a rejected savior. Now, most of the time, David passed the test in the wilderness, but not always. He did cut off the corner of the rope. Jesus, like David, was homeless with no place to lay his head. Jesus, like David, spent time in the wilderness but passed every test. Jesus is the true and better David, the full and final rejected Savior. As God narrates your life and you live each scene, you too will fall short. You too will sin. That's why you look for salvation and the only one who went through every scene of life sinless. This is the gospel. Jesus lived perfectly where you didn't. Repent of your sin and run to Jesus for salvation. Five reasons you need this text. One, it points you to Christ. Two, it reveals your need for Christian friends. Through all the scenes of life, one of the things that can make sad scenes sweet is when you go through them with Christian brothers and sisters. What are you doing to formulate these friendships? Are your friendships built on working out together? Or working the same job together? Or having the same age kids together? Build your friendships on the word of God. Speak the promises of God to one another. 
Five reasons you need this text. One, it points you to Christ. Two, it reveals your need for Christian friends. Three, it informs you that life is not always happy clappy. Your life isn't always happy clappy, so the Bible isn't always happy clappy. How many of these scenes would David have not chosen for himself? I don't know the title for these scenes in your life. A swole baby. A disastrous divorce. A debilitating disease. A very dark night. There are betrayals and hurts, misunderstandings and pain, cries and screams. When you go through those scenes, let it remind you of the final scene that all those blood-bought redeemed will live. The new earth scene in Revelation when God makes the sad come untrue. When he mends the broken hearts, there will be no more broken relationships. There will be no more tears. There will be no more painful memories of injustices that happened to you in the cave. You can endure any scene on earth because your hope is in the last one. When God makes the new earth and we shall dwell there forever in the final scene. The earth will no longer groan and neither will you. Five reasons you need this text. The fourth reason is this. It demonstrates that God is working in the small details. Engineering. All of your circumstances in life. It keeps you from bitterness and gives you boldness to know that God's providence and provision in your life is unstoppable. The last reason you need this text Number five, it reinforces to you that God doesn't need you to try cases for him. He doesn't need you to be judge, jury, and executioner. Christian, this is how you handle the innuendos and the criticisms and the lies and the rumors. You trust God to narrate the scene to bring himself the greatest glory. At the end of the day, you step back and you say, glory be to God, let him narrate. Let's stand and pray. Father, we are not desiring to rush into your presence today. We desire to come humbly, but boldly. Father, we trust you. We let you narrate. We do ask, Lord, in the painful scenes, give us grace to endure. In the pleasant scenes, give us wisdom to enjoy. And in all scenes... Give us a thirst for you. We make this petition in the beautiful name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. 
We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.